What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Recover Out Loud. Sitting with Sean, brought to you by the Antisocial Network. My name is Sean, as you know, and today I have a, a very awesome guest all the way from Anchorage, Alaska. We've got Dustin Morris. How you doing, Dustin? Good, man. How are you? Oh, dude, I'm great. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot happier that I'm not in the cold weather, man. <laughs> yeah, we're getting second winter. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, you guys got slammed by snow, I heard. Again. Snow, and now it's windy, and, uh, you know, when it gets that weird warm, and everything gets weird, and then it gets cold again, and we get more snow, and fun it's time. That's not fun. <laughs> Yesterday was 70 degrees here in West Virginia. Nice. That's Dude. great. Yeah, it was awesome. And then and then last night, there was a uh, thunderstorm, and I was like, well, here we are. Here we are. Back, back in the South, brother. Um, <laughs> But anyways, anyways, Dustin, would you like to give a formal introduction of yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Dustin Morris. I'm the statewide area director for the Alaska chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I'm also a board member for the Alaska Care Line, and I sit on several um, committees for the state regarding our 988 crisis lifeline um, and a bunch of other things. So, but uh, those are those are my main area focuses. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're a man of many hats. <laughs> Too bad I don't look good in hats, but I wear them. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I don't, I don't look good in hats either. I mean, I just shave my head bald and then throw a hat on, so nobody has to, <laughs> nobody has to get blinded by the light. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, anyways, you're an artist too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I, well, I guess officially. A digital illustrator. I don't know. There's, I, I like to doodle on my iPad with a program and uh, it's a lot of fun. And I try to use that talent to, to encourage messages that are positive or a reflection of what's going on in the world today. And that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. When did you, when did you start doing art? Uh, I was probably about five years old. I think um, my mom likes to tell the story of catching me coloring on my my sheets you know when we were kids everybody has the cartoon sheets and i always thought it was cool to to color them and then um i was probably about 10 years old when i got in trouble for drawing the neighbor girl without any clothes on um <laughs> nobody was posing for anything but i i thought that's what you were supposed to do and um you know art art has always kind of been something that i i enjoy Sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes you draw inappropriate shit. <laughs> <laughs> I did it too. I'm not any good at, at drawing, but hey, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, I found out I found out through a, through a good buddy, a common friend of ours, that you're an artist, and I was like, huh. I've seen some of your artwork. I was like, man, this dude is really good, and you are you are phenomenal. You're an amazing oh, artist. You. Appreciate that. Yeah. What if you've noticed uh, any therapeutic value in in artwork? What, do you, would you be able to point that out for you? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, for me, there's a couple things. One, it's a great tool when I'm trying to avoid stuff, right? Like, yeah. I just don't want to deal with things so I can escape and avoid. Um, and the other thing, it's 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 my self-care, right? Like, that's something I do primarily just for me. Um, and I, it brings me joy. It helps me clear my mind and especially after a really long day and if it's been particularly hard it's just nice to kind of check out for a little bit and and make something um you know and it doesn't have to be digital it could if i were 
I don't know, a craftsman, I would be building something. Um, but yeah, I definitely like to use that as a way to just kind of check out for a little bit and tune up my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I found out the arts, the arts for me really help, you know, not necessarily drawing. I'm terrible at drawing, but like getting my hands in clay and working with working with clay or playing guitar or drums really helps. It helps me out a lot. So and and they have a, a very good like a therapeutic value, not just with that, but, um, you know, it helps um, restructure the brain, create new neural pathways in the brain. It's pretty awesome. Pretty cool That's stuff. Incredible. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Cool stuff. So, <clears throat> so tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about why you got into suicide prevention. Mm. Um, I think it's a cool story. I don't know if it is, but um, so I have always been working. Uh, I, I started working a long time. I think sixteen when I had like a first real, like real, real job. But I've been working since like I was 11, mowing yards and, and shoveling and doing all the things. So work has always been really, really important to me. And my career path led me into nonprofit, uh, into the nonprofit realm with the American Heart Association and uh, was really, really enjoying what I was doing. Uh, at that time, I was a fitness instructor uh, part-time and um, then organizing races and walks and going in and just talking about living a healthy lifestyle. Um, and I got this phone call one day from, from this organization, a, a recruiter was looking for a, a director and said, Hey, we, we think you have something that we're interested in. Would you like to talk about working on suicide prevention? And <laughs> it was all I could do not to hang up the phone. I was like, I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. Like, what? I don't even know what that means to work in suicide prevention. Like, am I going to be on a call line all day or like, what, what is that? But it really, it, it wasn't my jam at the time. And I said, you know, thanks, but no, and gave out some referrals Said, yeah, this or that person. Well, they called me back and they said, we those people. We, we're still interested in you. We'd really like to talk to you. And I don't know what was going on at the time or what it was about my resume, but they they wanted to talk to me and I turned them down. Again. I didn't even want to have the conversation. Um, and then an article in the uh, newspaper came out about our state's suicide statistics in, in Alaska. Uh, we rank pretty high. We're number two in the nation. And um, this was 2019. And at that time, the, the article included the age rates, right? So it said that the leading cause of death for Alaskans ages 10 to 24 was suicide. And when I read that, I, I couldn't help but feel something. 10-year-olds, 10-year-olds getting to a point where they feel like that's an option. And I thought, what kind of world is that? What kind of world is that for, for somebody so young to feel that that is an option for them to, to deal with whatever they're dealing with? And I thought, well, you know, if they call me back, I would be silly not to take that call, especially that being the third time. And it was like two days later, my phone rang guess who it was? It was a recruiter saying, hey, Dustin, are you at all interested in this? We want to try again. And I said, let's go. And I went through the interview process and got the job. And I've been doing it for four years now. Um, 
it is really hard work. It is not an easy job for anybody. Um, and and uh, but we're seeing outcomes now. We're we're coming around this corner where a lot of good things are happening. And as difficult as it has been uh, for the last several years, especially for the whole world, um, we're we're starting to see that light. We we know where it's at. We know we're getting closer, and and we kind of can see some of the hurdles that we're going to have to get over to get to it but we have a plan. So it, it brings me hope. It brings me excitement. And uh, it reassures me that the things that we do have an impact on our community. Absolutely. You know, look, looking at where you were to where you are now, like, you know, it's crazy going from the American Heart Foundation to where you are now in suicide prevention, you know, in a weird way, one, one extreme to the other. You yeah. Know? But in, in essence, you're saving lives. And that, to me, that's super commendable, whether it was, you know, with the American Heart Foundation or working in suicide prevention, you're, you are, are changing lives and you're saving lives. So I hope that you take a moment to pat yourself on the back. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so um, you, you talked about the age range, age range of, of 10 to, to 24 of being one of the highest rates. Uh, why do you think that is? Oh, well, first, let me just say I'm not a clinician. So anything that I'm, I'm saying is just based on observations as, as just a normal person, right? Um, but the world is different. The world is very, very different. So, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 42. And when I was in high school more than 20 years ago, uh, the things that we were dealing with, while they were difficult, they were not the same things. And we had different coping mechanisms and um, or we knew how to compartmentalize things enough that we could get through for the most part. And I don't know that a lot of today's kids have the skill set uh, that they need to cope with the feelings that they're having. Um, I, I don't want to sound like the old guy that like technology ruined it all. But, you know, when you look at the amount of technology kids are consuming, uh, even adults, you know, how much time are we sitting in front of a screen? what impact does that have on our ability to interact with each other and, and real life? And, and how does that affect our mental health? You know, what, what is that doing to a person who's spending 12 hours in front of a screen a day, if not more? Um, how, how does that impact a person? And I think you're seeing that in, in our youth, especially. Um, and again, this is just my opinion, not, not based on facts. Um, but you know, you, it's observable. You can see kids with their heads down and their phones and their devices. Uh, their homework is online. Like everything is through this, even you and I right now, like, we're connected yeah. online. But um, when you're so young, you're, you're missing those life experiences to be able to really connect. And another, um, you know, observation of that, I got to sit at a university one day with um a health department that was tabling and they were giving out really cool stuff and they weren't really asking any of the the students for for much they were just kind of trying to engage them give them some information and some cool trinkets but you could see the instant uh stress and anxiety and 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 the people that were walking past like they're like oh my god they're going to talk to me they're going to ask me something i'm going to be expected to engage and immediately the phones would come out their heads would go down they would start swerving like where do i go what do i do and you could see this panic in them and i sat there for three and a half hours and 
every single student that was walking by had the same reaction and it was visible. And so, you know, I don't know what's causing all of these things and, and what's happening, but you can visibly see it. Um, and, and we have statistics that show just how much our youth are, uh, are struggling right now. And even our Surgeon General issued an advisory. Um, the National Academy of Pediatrics has said it's more than that. Um, and a lot of work is going into addressing this issue, especially with youth, uh, and particularly with youth ages 12 to 14. Um, and over the last couple of years, we've seen a huge uptick in attempts um, and, and youth being admitted to emergency departments for, for attempting on their life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm 34 and, you know, in high school, suicide wasn't a word, <laughs> you know, like I can't, I don't, I, I can honestly say, I don't know a, a single person I went to school with that, that attempted, um, while, at least while I was in school afterwards, different, but Sure. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. We, we had those those tools and the skills to compartmentalize, at least for the moment, to deal with those things. And now um, the youth today doesn't necessarily have those skills. And I don't know if it's, it's on us as parents or as role models or, or what have you, or if it's just or if it's just, you know, time. Time has kind of progressed with technology, you know, um, but it. Yeah, it, it's sad. I, I, I see a lot of kids. I've seen a lot of kids struggle with with uh, with the mental health issues and with suicidal ideations and stuff like that. And that's it's really hard to see, especially a kid that is so, so young, like you were saying. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's tough. And, um, you know, while I don't work in any of the direct services, um, I'm still I hear about it. I'm impacted by it. Those, those stories get shared and man, people are dealing with some serious stuff and, and not just uh, the the patients themselves or those that are, are with lived experience, but also our caregivers and, and first responders, the things that they are seeing and having to deal with, they're, they're pretty heavy. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you think that um, that that age range, the, the 10 to 24 also goes into play with uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, teenagers leaving home, going to college or leaving home and going to fulfill a job and they're just in their homesick. They don't know how to cope with that. Do you think that could be yeah, the, thing? that transitional age group, right? That like 17 to 24 year old person. That's that's usually when you're leaving high school, you're going into the workforce, maybe you're going into college or or something else. Life is changed it's not school and and classwork now it's you're on your own you got to figure out your schedule you got to do all the things it's kind of like when you get discharged from the military right like your your whole life is now suddenly different um the very next day you you walk that stage and now what um and that's that's true for a lot of these kids they 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 don't know what to do. They, they don't have purpose. They're trying to figure it out. There's all these pressures to get a job, get a car, get a place to live, you know, make sure you're doing all these things. And maybe they don't know how or don't have the support or whatever it is. Um, they're, they're already dealing with depression or anxiety disorders. And then you compound that with these, um, these stressors. It, it just creates situations that are not always good, right? And so 
that age group is particularly vulnerable and there is a lot um, of resources for them, but they've got to be made aware of it. They got to know how to get to it. And, and so do parents and any other trusted adult, you know, they've, they've got to be informed and know how to access this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that awareness, that, that awareness is, is kind of where you, you kick in, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We're doing a lot of that through our programs and PSAs and national partnerships and, um, just even at the local level, we just spent um, three days at the Capitol of Juneau and talking with our legislators about the issues that our state's experiencing. And, you know, we I think we have this misnomer that our, our elected officials are aware of everything that's going on, and they're really not. So it's up to us to bring it to their attention and talk about these issues and to shed light on it. And um, you'll be surprised at how receptive these individuals are and how much they really do want to help in spite of all the politics around it. Yeah. You know, legislators, they have a lot going on uh, and they don't get to see everything, especially from, at, you know, at a ground level. So, you know, you go in there and, and speaking on, on behalf of, of, of everybody, that's pretty awesome. And, yeah. and with being able, I, I'm pretty sure that being able to see how receptive they are was, was pretty awesome. Yeah, it's great, right? Like you, you, that's what you want to see. And it's, it is disheartening when um, occasionally you're met with opposition or resistance to have the conversation. And, um, but what I think those opportunities are is, is a moment to lean in, right? Like figure it out. What, what is it that causes you to hesitate to talk about this issue? What is it that makes you not want to address this issue? Why wouldn't you want to save lives, right? I mean, I lead every one of those conversations with kids are dying and they don't have to. And, you know, who wouldn't want to help, right? And so um, it, messages matter and, and how you approach it matters. And um, even if we don't agree politically, that doesn't mean we can't figure out how to work together um, and, and we need to see more of that. So th yeah, the advocacy part of what we do is really, really important. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, I, I, there's a statistic that rolls around the 22 a day for vet for veterans. Um, and that has been there for a while. One of the things that I absolutely, and, and you know, I'm saying this first, first year you've heard it first year. I hate seeing people say, oh, we're going to do 22 push-ups for suicide awareness. I'm sorry, and excuse my language, but what the fuck are doing push-ups going to do to save somebody's life? Yeah. You you need to get out there. You need to have the hard conversations. You've got to make the phone calls that, that suck to make. You've got to, you know, get in there and, and get connected with nonprofits that are going to help save people's lives, not do it. Fucking push-up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And that number, you know, thrown around a lot. It's 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 catchy. It's 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 buzzy and it sticks. But, uh, you know, the reality is something completely different. And um, but this population is is really struggling. And what we saw in Alaska, we had 42 veterans die uh, in 2021 by suicide. It's the highest number on record for our state. Um, so we had 220 people die by suicide, 42 of them were veterans. That's a, a huge number. And when we look at the number year over year over year, at least with our veteran population, it continues to increase every single year. 
And, you know, similar to what I just said about, you know, the tr those transitional kids going from school to whatever's next, we see that with our veteran population, right? And, and I'm not a veteran, I don't have a military background, but I've heard from so many veterans that have talked about that transition period, the time, the day that they're discharged to it's like and the impact that, that has on people is tremendous. And then to see just how long that manifests, right? Whether that's the PTSD, whether that's just the shock of now, now what? Who am I? What do I do? How do I provide for my family or myself or whatever? Like all the things, and you're just expected to know. And those were not life skills that you perhaps learned during your your time in the service, right? You're singularly focused on following command and doing what's in front of you and and what you're told, right? That doesn't really leave time for, well, how do I pay my mortgage? And how do I open a checking account? And all of the life skills that you need when when you're done. Um, so it, it's it's interesting and everybody's experience different. I know you know that, but um, our veteran population needs all the support it can get. And these um, lip service agencies that like to tag on, you know, we, we proudly support our veterans. Well, what does that mean? How are you supporting our veterans? Are you employing them? Are you donating to a cause? Are you you know what what are you doing to support our veterans I, I would like to know and there's a lot of agencies like that but i also will tell you i've met a lot of really good ones that are doing the work that they're you know they're shoulder to shoulder and they're and they're making change so yeah yeah that's that's you know i've noticed that a lot there's a whole lot of patriotism floating around the word patriotism gets thrown out there a lot but in, in this term, uh, there's a whole lot of patriotism floating around until it's time to actually do the work. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, oh, hey, you know, a veteran just gets out of the, you know, out of the military and goes and applies for a job. Well, he's not going to get that job because he doesn't have the skills. Well, yeah, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have skills because he was trained to kill. He wasn't trained to to do this. So instead of, you know, shooting him down, give him an opportunity to prove himself. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. We're <laughs> that, that that's outside. It's outside of conversation. Sure. Um, okay, so I, I met you. Uh, I would say September, October last year. Yeah, yeah somewhere around there. That's yeah, we, yeah. And we we went we went and did a did a suicide prevention class for for um, probation officers. Yeah. My my question is. And I, I've been in trouble with the law before, and I've had a, a PO before. Why is it important for probation officers to receive that training? Oh man, what a what a good question. Um, you know, it. I I went through this reentry simulation one day. Um, I was out in Dillingham, and I was there for for a week. And we did this we did this reentry simulation where we were released from um prison and then we were put on parole and we were expected to do all these things right and and really it was designed you were not going to succeed you were really set up to fail and so we we did all the things that we kept trying and you know we got discouraged and frustrated and all the things and we we're constantly we have to report to this po right like hey you know i didn't am i going to jail i 
I didn't get to my drug test today, or I couldn't pay rent, I, I still don't have an ID, all of these things, right? And that that puts a person in a situation that's just ready for depression and anxiety and other things and your mental health is deteriorating and who else are you going to talk to other than the person you're mandated to talk to right like you got to check in with this person they have a real opportunity to identify um what's going on with you and and if that person is struggling with their mental health and it needs additional support well that po can can help they can help intervene they can help connect or be a listening ear for a moment you know and really reinforce that even though you're dealing with a person who who maybe has done really bad things they're still a human being they paid their time they're 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 trying to uh reacclimate to the to the world and they need support in that and every person that i've talked to in recovery or re-entry or anything it's always been the moment of change or or in the profound moment was when they were treated like a human with dignity and respect. And if we can encourage that through suicide prevention training in our POs, rem remind them that these are human beings that you're dealing with and that they have real uh, emotions and, and situations where they need a little support in the, and then maybe we're gonna save lives. I mean, we and that's what we want. We wanna save lives and there's lots of ways to do that. And those POs can be a point of contact for someone who's struggling. And also even in the correction systems itself, those those parole officers and, and other correction officers, they're dealing with some stuff too. And, and they have little to no support to decompress and, and debrief when, when crap goes wrong and they're, you know, all the things, they don't have that. We're going back to legislation, we're pushing legislation, to get peer-to-peer -peer support for our first responders and, and making sure that they're taken care of. Um, so on all ends, we got to look at this, like how do we save lives? And and that's just one way that we do that. So yeah, um, I hope that answered the question. Oh, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. You know, being able to be a, a presenter and, and and interact with, with uh, probation officers, being on the other side of things and, 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 you know, uh, having, you know, worked with a PO before it was cool to, to be able to, to humanize, you know, probation officers, but also humanize the badge. And I think that that's huge, you know, being able to, to see, you know, to see the change in their face from when they, you know, when they first enter the classroom to like, Oh shit, this is real. Like it's, yeah. it's right in your face and you can't run from it. Yeah. I think it's pretty yeah, I mean, awesome. um, I would almost ask you, I mean, you, you, your experience is very different than mine, but I mean, why do you think that they should learn this skill? I think it's a, I think it's a two tier, um, situation there. Um, first, obviously, as you said, you're working with, uh, with, uh, uh an individual who could, come from a background of a lot of different things, you know, substance abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, what have you. And, and they were in the system for so long, they were in, in jail for so long and they're getting out and they're reacclimating back into society. Times have changed. Right. And, and maybe they haven't caught up with the times. I know I have a friend that got out of jail and he was like, I don't even know what a smartphone is. I don't know how to operate a smartphone. Right. And so 
that PO can be that first person or, or one of those first people to really set them on the path to success. Whereas we've seen in the past that POs don't necessarily do that, right? Pro officers, probation officers, they're not that, that guide for them. They're just, they, they're looked at as punishers. Yeah. And so, so you're working with, with, uh, with somebody that, that, um, is a high risk right off the bat and, and you don't know if that risk will lower for them. So, um, I think it's very, very important for, for the POs to have that training that says, Hey, you know, um, these are the signs, um, that we can look for when somebody is, you know, potentially thinking of suicide. But also I think that it's important for, for them to recognize it, not just in themselves, but in, in their, in their peers, right. Yeah. And the people they work with, um, because, um, you can always look inward and you know, sometimes, you know, if, if you're in, in that, that place where you're like, this is the only option I have. Okay. This, these, I know my signs, but you don't necessarily know other people's signs. So if you teach a wide variety of signs and, and things like that, yeah, it, it can definitely change the dynamic. And then on top of that, you're saving life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, if you highlight all the, all the things, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, I like to tell people it's one of those catchy words these days, but there's a lot of uh, intersectionality in suicide prevention, right? There's all these overlapping things and all these areas of focus that people don't traditionally think about when it comes to how do we stop suicide. And it's everything from working with our uh, Department of Corrections, Department of Justice, working with Department of Defense, working with our Department of Education, like all of these, all these things, addressing job insecurities and food insecurities and, and people who are experiencing homelessness, all of these things solve our suicide issue. Um, when we address substance misuses and we address sexual assault and abuse in the home and you know, these things. And I hear from these parent right groups. I'm a parent. I have three kids in our school systems. And I, I hear from these, these groups that don't want kids to learn about mental health. And I'm like, why? I'm a parent. I know. I mean, I'm involved. And if you're not involved, well, that's not my fault. Don't take my rights away because I want my kids to learn this. I want your kids to learn this. And, and how do we help make that happen? Um, instead of constantly fighting each other, I'm like, dude, I will talk to you. I will listen to you. I will help us find a way if we can just work together. Yeah. Um, there's no reason for all this opposition that we see, especially when it comes to saving lives. Absolutely. Uh, why do you think it's hard for people to have that tough conversation? Um, you know, historically, it's it's suicide has been criminalized. It's been something that people have, um, you know, made shameful. Um, there's societal norms that we, you know, what is the role of a man? What is the role of a woman? What is all of these other things? And there's these expectations that go with that. And if you can't meet those expectations, well, then, you know, you're suddenly feeling like you're less than or not capable of and that manifests in all these other ways, right? So there's just been all of these cultural shifts to make that not okay. But if you think about, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we were probably still whispering the word cancer, 
And now, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. We have hockey games and basketball games and football games and real men wear pink and all of this stuff where cancer is loud and proud, right? Um, we're moving that direction when it comes to mental health, when it comes to suicide prevention. The pandemic, if I look at one thing that came positive from the COVID pandemic, that's, that's it. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about it like we never talked about it before. We're making it okay. We're seeing our superstars out there saying, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. I'm setting boundaries. I'm not going to do these things. Um, I, I'm going to, you know, get better. And I love that. I love that. And and when I see the rebuttal to the, the counter um, culture to that, where people want to condemn and say, you know, how dare you? I had tickets to that or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, here's another learning opportunity. Let's, let's work with this. How do we, how do we make this okay? And, and people to accept and realize that this person needs to be healthy mentally and physically in order to do the things that we want them to do. Um, so, you know, and the, it, yeah, I could talk forever about that, but I am excited to see just how much progress we've made in the last three plus years when it comes to talking about this issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we talked about statistics a little bit earlier. Uh, what are some more statistics that are floating around? Um, well, I, it's funny. I was just on the Vital Statistics website today. We're still processing the data that came from the CDC and so, you know, there are a lot of data points. And if you don't know where they are, it can be really confusing. And data can also be really dangerous. So, uh, you know, we always want to vet the data, make sure it's accurate, and um, really pause and reflect how you want to share that information. So uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting was the number of suicides that occurred by firearm, right? It continues to grow and be an issue. Um, a hundred. So again, in Alaska, 2021, which is the most recent data, we had 220 suicide deaths that occurred. 142 of those were by firearm. Um, that's a huge statistic, right? That's that's more than half. That's a lot. Um, we tend to be up in the 60s to 70 percentile when it comes to um, firearms, and, and more people. Um, nationally it's over half of all suicides occur with a firearm and more people die by suicide than in war and in natural death disasters combined right so it's a big number and there's some serious risk factors around firearms now i'm not advocating for you know all these all these things but what we want to advocate for is educating people on what are the risk of having a firearm in your home how should you um, care for that firearm and when is it time to have maybe a friend or someone else intervene where they can hold on to your firearm for a little while again we're not saying you know we want cops to come in and seize all your stuff we're saying there's a time and place for everything and hanging on you know a, a buddy saying hey can i hang on to your gun for a little while it's a great thing and and we should encourage that and we should make sure that people have those resources and um, that they know keep them locked up keep keep your guns separate from your ammunition uh, make sure that both things are in locks and um, if you need someone to hold on to that for you let them hold on to that for you many states you can even go to, to 
uh, a position and say, I temporarily surrender my firearm and they will hold it for you, no questions asked, and give it back to you, no questions asked. Like, they're there to help. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of things and those numbers are telling us that. Um, another, you know, statistic that we shared a lot with our legislators because of uh, certain pieces of legislation is the, again, the risk factors with our youth, but particularly within the, uh, those that identify as LGBTQ, right? One in eight tried to kill themselves. One in eight of our students, high school students who identify as LGBTQ tried to kill themselves. Why? What's going on? Uh, you know, a lot of this legislation that's out there is only going to magnify that and make that worse for a, a population of people that are already struggling. Um, and so we look at all these things. We also look at, you know, the bigger picture too. One in five of all high school students um, seriously thought about ending their life um, within the past year. One in five had suicidal ideations. That's a lot of our kids, it's a lot. Um, and so, you know, again, when we look at statistics, you know, we, we look first, things that are going to help. Um, we look for identifiers where, you know, we don't want to mislead anybody. We don't want to use data that that paints an inaccurate story. And you do see that a lot, especially um, when when you have, when you're trying to drive the, the message a certain way, right? You want, you want like COVID, oh man. So, you know, regardless of people's thoughts on that, people were really using data to paint a picture on lots of different perspectives. And so again, data is interesting, it's important, it can be dangerous and it can be really, really helpful. Um, and, I, and I guess to one more point to that, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, working with even the Alaska Suicide uh, Prevention Council on data collection, that's, that's a part of the next uh, strategic plan, the next five years. Let's talk about data collection. How do we get it better, uh, faster? How do we disseminate that? How do we also deliver messaging that goes with that on how other people can share this data and do it in a safe way? Um, so data is going to be a big focus the next several years, and, and we want to make sure that we're doing that um, safely, responsibly, and that we're giving it out in a way that others can do the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're hundred percent correct. You know, data in the wrong hands is very dangerous. You know, statistics, very dangerous because it can be manipulated and, and stuff like that. So I, I do agree with you hundred percent. Um, last question before we go, how can we have these conversations, these tough conversations with family members or friends, whether it's, Hey, I am thinking about it or, Hey, do you, are you thinking about it? Yeah. Like, uh, I, I guess, how do you start the conversation yeah. at home or with anyone? Um, so yeah, we have so many programs that that's one of the, the primary focuses of it. Right. And even our, I think our signature program, I'll call it, it's called talk saves lives. Mm -hmm. And it's all about recognizing what are the warning signs? when to have these conversations, how to have these conversations. And it's really important that you, one, you do it privately, right? We don't want to put anybody on blast. We're not trying to have like a mega intervention or something like that. This is this is a private conversation. We, we want to uh, respect the trust that we're given. 
when someone shares something personal with us. And that doesn't mean that we can't tell anybody about it, but we want to make sure that we're tactful about that and, and that the people that we're sharing with that with are people that need to know that information, right? Not just, hey, you know, Sean and I talked and he told me all this stuff and you won't believe what he said. No, it's, you know, I got to tell the doctor. I got to tell a teacher. I need to tell a friend because I'm struggling with what I just heard. Um, and and don't try to fix it, right? As, as a friend, as a family member, oftentimes we can't fix this situation. We're not going to be able to do that, but we can support a person through their journey as they strive to heal from whatever they're experiencing, right? Um, so if you've never gone through, for instance, uh, a deep depressive episode, you can't say to somebody who's going through depression, oh yeah, I understand what that's like. You literally don't understand what it's like. You cannot you fathom what that person's feeling, but you can validate it and say, hey, I may not understand what you're going through, but I can see this is really hard. And if you want to talk about it, I'm here for you. Um, and then just sit there and quiet. Like, you don't have to say another word. And if they never respond with, with words back, that's okay too, right? Sometimes we just need to sit in the moment. Um, but don't try to fix it. Don't come in with all these solutions and say, you know, snap out of it. And if you just do this or if you just did that and, you know, why, why would you be mad at your whoever, you know, like, don't, don't do that. Instead, just try to listen, um, ask some questions, share why you're concerned. You can do that too. And that helps break the ice, right? Like oftentimes if you're going through some stuff and somebody says something to you, like, hey, do you want to talk about it? That can feel like really accusatory. Like why, why do you want to talk about it? What's going on? Like what's suddenly you're on the defense and you don't even know why you're on the defense, but they said something that just didn't settle well with you, even though they're trying to help. So you as the person who's trying to get to the bottom of it, maybe share why you're asking that. Like, hey, dude, I noticed that you seem a little distant lately. I just wanted to check in. How you doing? That I think helps so much because now they just identified why you want, why you're asking this question. What did I do that made you want to ask that? And, and it just settles a lot of stuff. So be okay with pointing this out. And then the hardest part, I think is asking the question that you don't want the answer to be yes to, right? You you have to ask directly the question about suicide. You can't say, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Typically this person's already in pain, whether that's mental or physical or both. Someone who is hurting is not thinking about hurting themselves. They're thinking about how do I make this stop? How do I make this pain go away? And that doesn't mean that they want to die. They want this pain to stop. So you have to say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you had thoughts of suicide? Um, do you do you want to harm yourself if if they're not thinking of killing themselves? And then if they say yes, thank you for sharing that with me. Have you thought about how you might do that? And and let them talk. And if they have a plan, you you already know the severity of the situation. If they don't have a plan, you know, that that also kind of gauges that we've, we've got a little bit more time and we need to get this person help. Um, if they do have a plan, maybe that's time to call 988 right in that moment and just say, hey, look, we're not in crisis, but a crisis could be coming. What do we do about this? They'll help you through that moment. Um, you're not expected to know all the things. You're not expected to be able to walk away from that conversation, not feeling something. And it's really important that you as the caregiver, uh, whatever your role is, to take care of yourself in that process too.
absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, that those are all really good topics or sorry, really good ways to, to handle that. Um, some things I didn't know, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but anyways, before we go, um, what advice or suggestions would you give to somebody that is struggling with suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideations? Um, if they were standing in front of you. Yeah. Um, one is to, it, it no matter how often it doesn't feel like it, please try to remember you're not alone. There are people that do care. Your story is not a burden to anyone. People want to hear it. They want it. They want to know that you're okay. And the way they want to know when you're not okay, both of those scenarios, you need to reach out and just express it. And if you don't know what to say, just blurt out whatever, just, if you need to scream the F word, then scream the F word. Just, Give yourself permission to seek some help. Don't hold it in. And if you have nobody in your life that you feel like you can share that with, again, 988. That person, their only job is to listen to you and to um, validate what you're going through and to try to connect you with whatever resources you need. They're not there to judge. They're not there to call the police. They're not there to do anything other than to listen and give you the care that you need. So if you don't have someone, if you don't feel like no anyone else will listen to you, call 988, call it, text it, go online, Google it. Um, that's They're there for you, no matter how you access it. Someone will listen to you. Someone will get you where you need to be. You don't have to end your life. Um, there, There is help. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Dustin, I want to I want to take a moment and, and thank you for spending this uh, 45 minutes with us and talking uh, over suicide prevention. That's um, something that I think a lot of more people need to hear. And uh, and your voice is the right one to do it. Oh, so, thanks. so thank you. Thank you for for uh, for sharing and and for being here. Uh, I appreciate you. Yeah, dude. Thank you. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for recovering out loud. <laughs> thank you. All right. And everybody, everybody, thank you for watching this episode of Recover Out Loud. And I hope you guys have a good day. Till next time. Much love.